This is C-SPAN's The Weekly for February 9th, 2018. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. In the days before FISA, um, with a few ups and downs over the years, um, various presidents and attorneys general and uh, FBI Director Hoover and others would engage in wiretap, uh, in, in national security wiretaps, without any advanced judicial approval based on internal executive branch decision-making only. So they would assess whether a wiretap was appropriate, and then they would, if they thought it was appropriate, go ahead and do it, but without talking to a judge. This week, we look at the history of FISA, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. David Chris was head of the Justice Department's National Security Division during the Obama administration. He walks us through what it is, what it means, and why it's front-page news. Attorney David Chris, President Jimmy Carter signed the FISA law back in 1978. Why was the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act put in place in the first place? Primarily, it was a response to abuses uh, by the intelligence community in the area of wiretapping and uh, other matters that had been occurring for uh, many years prior to FISA's enactment in 1978. So the law was designed both to authorize and to regulate foreign intelligence surveillance conducted in this country. Let's talk about the process. How does it work, and uh, what are some of the pitfalls that we've learned in recent years about the FISA Act? FISA is a very complicated uh, statute, but the 1978 version of the law, which is sometimes called traditional FISA, um, requires a process that involves a lot of different people. Um, It begins usually with an affidavit from an FBI agent at FBI headquarters in Washington, D.C. That affidavit will be subjected to various um, accuracy testing procedures to ensure that it correctly reports various facts. Um, And then it is put together with a legal memo from a career uh, lawyer at the Department of Justice and a certification from a high-ranking politically accountable official, say the FBI director or deputy director, And then finally, um, added to that will be the written approval of the attorney general, the deputy attorney general, or the assistant attorney general for national security. And this whole package of affidavit, certification, legal memo, and AG approval will go to a FISA court judge. And the FISA court sits in Washington, D.C. It's composed of 11 federal judges who have been appointed by the chief justice of the United States. And they come to town for week-long tours of duty on a rotating basis and hear the various wiretap applications that are presented to them and then rule upon those applications um, and, in many cases, most cases, authorize them, and the wiretap can then go forward. I'm curious, what happened before FISA? If the government needed to get information, believed that there were individuals that uh, were threatening homeland security, for example, what did... Congress, what did lawmakers do? What did the intelligence agencies do? Um, In the days before FISA, um, with a few ups and downs over the years, um, various presidents and attorneys general and uh, FBI Director Hoover and others would engage in wiretap, uh, in, in national security wiretaps, without any advanced judicial approval based on internal executive branch decision making only. 
So they would assess whether a wiretap was appropriate, and then they would, if they thought it was appropriate, go ahead and do it, but without talking to a judge. Um, a judge would get involved in, in those days only on the, on the other end if they decided to try to use the fruits of a wiretap in some kind of criminal proceeding. So in some ways, FISA's main innovation was uh, to put a judge in between the government and the commencement of a FISA wiretap. You mentioned the Church Committee, a reference to Senator Frank Church, Democrat from Idaho. What was his background? Why was this such a passion for him? And what did he bring to Congress in terms of the FISA Act back in the 1970s? Well, Senator Church brought, um, I think, a bipartisan approach and a high level of integrity to the process of generating his report, the report that was generated by the committee that he chaired. Um, And um, it's a remarkable document, um, very long, very thorough, and it clinically and precisely documents an incredible array of abusive behavior, behavior that even the most ardent pro-security person today would find horrifying, um, not only in the field of wiretapping, but in, in other areas as well effectively covert action carried out against Martin Luther King, unauthorized testing of LSD and other drugs on unwitting Americans, um, and a lot of surveillance, electronic surveillance included on Americans in violation of various laws and constitutional principles. It's, it's an astounding report in many, many volumes. When I was the head of the National Security Division from 2009 to 11, I insisted uh, and required that all new attorneys starting in the division would read excerpts from the church report. Um, and its release was the galvanizing force that led to a variety of different reforms of our intelligence community, um, including FISA. Uh, and these reforms might be summed up under the, under the headline of sort of uh, intelligence under law. That's the paradigm that has governed us uh, for the ensuing 40-plus years. Um, Among other things, for example, the Congressional Intelligence Committees, both the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence and the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, were created in the uh, aftermath of the Church Report. Attorney Chris, let me break this down even a little further. First of all, who makes up the FISA court? I know you said earlier they will meet for a one-week period over the course of a year to take in information. And and how does it all work? What's the process involved? So the FISA court, which is the court that hears the wiretap applications, is made up of 11 United States district court judges, federal judges, ordinary federal judges drawn from all over the country. They're appointed to their positions by the Chief Justice of the United States, the Chief Justice on the Supreme Court, John Roberts, currently. Um, Their names are public. There's a website for the FISA court that you can go and see uh, so you can learn who they all are. Um, And they are on for staggered terms of years, and then they roll off and a new judge uh, is appointed in their place. And all of the FISA judges since 1978, um, you can find their names uh, on the Internet. Um, One judge at a time hears wiretap applications, just like in a, in a criminal wiretap setting or even in a criminal search warrant setting. They come to town from wherever they live. 
they sit for a week in the special FISA courtroom, and they hear the applications from the government and rule on them. Uh, in the olden days, when FISA was first enacted, the FISA courtroom was actually inside the main justice building, the main Department of Justice headquarters building in Washington. Um, and it was set up that way by Congress because uh, it wasn't clear that the courts had enough uh, infrastructure to support the security requirements for a courtroom like this where very, very classified information is discussed. Um, in more recent years, the, uh, the district court in Washington, D.C. built an annex where the court now sits. So the FISA court has its own space uh, sort of in or next to the regular federal courthouse uh, where they where they can hear cases. But in the old days, they used to sit in a dusty little room in the Department of Justice. You mentioned amendments, and there have been a few in recent years, most notably the USA Patriot Act, which was put in place after September 11, 2001, and the Protect America Act of 2007. So walk us through the amendments to the original FISA law and what changes were made. Yeah, FISA has been amended a number of times since 1978. Um, the Patriot Act uh, made a number of changes right after the 9-11 attacks, the most significant of which was probably lowering the so-called FISA wall, which was a set of rules and understandings that kept intelligence efforts against terrorism separate from law enforcement efforts against terrorism. Um, it meant in practical terms, for example, that in many cases you'd have one squad of FBI agents uh, monitoring or investigating a terrorism suspect using criminal authorities, and then a completely separate squad effectively walled off from the first uh, investigating the same terrorism target on the intelligence side. And this was not a prescription for connecting the dots or for efficient or effective um, operations. So one of the main things the Patriot Act did was tear down that wall and allow for synergies and coordination between the two sides. Um, the second big change to FISA actually came after the Protect America Act, which was sort of a, a dress rehearsal for the law that followed it, the so-called FISA Amendments Act of 2008, which updated or modernized FISA to deal with some challenges as a result of evolving technology, uh, chiefly uh, internet and web-based email. Under the old law of FISA, if uh, a foreign terrorist in Pakistan was communicating with a foreign terrorist in Afghanistan, and neither of them had any connection to the United States whatsoever, other than perhaps a desire to do harm to it, um, they would still be subject to and protected by the full requirements of FISA if they opened an email account for free with some U.S. provider. And so the 2008 amendments updated FISA to permit uh, easier targeting of these kinds of people, non-U.S. persons, not Americans who are located abroad, even if they were using U.S. communications uh, infrastructure like uh, an email account from a U.S. provider. That was the big change from the 2008 legislation, which was just renewed for the second time, effectively, um, a few, uh, few weeks ago, uh, and will now run for another five years before it needs to be renewed again. 
One of the original sponsors of the FISA Act was Senator Edward Kennedy. And, of course, as you mentioned, Senator Frank Church was the genesis behind this. Would he be satisfied today with the way the law has evolved? (laughs) Well, I don't know uh, what Senator Kennedy would think today. Um, There's a lot, obviously, going on just at this particular moment um, in terms of uh, the whole framework of intelligence under law and FISA in particular with the with the memo from uh, Chairman Nunes and the possible release, I think, soon of the uh, Democratic counterpoint. Um, Senator Kennedy, um, I believe, was he was certainly instrumental in the 1978 FISA um, and in creating the compromise that was that law. And it's my recollection, though I can't be sure, that he also ultimately supported the FISA Amendments Act in 2008. Um, but there's a lot to be concerned about right now uh, in respect of FISA and the way in which it is being portrayed and used and, uh, as I say, the broader paradigm of intelligence under law uh, that we've been relying on for more than 40 years. It's clearly under a good deal of strain right now. And I want to come back to those points in just a moment. But another question in terms of the process, if, for example, the FBI has information that is time sensitive, they need to conduct the surveillance right away. Can they do so and then get the FISA approval retroactively? Yes, they can. Uh, There's a provision in FISA that is roughly analogous to a similar provision in the criminal wiretapping laws that allow for emergency approval uh, of FISA surveillance where the attorney general makes an appropriate finding, uh, not only that the requirements of the law have been met, but also that there's an emergency requiring immediate action, notifies the FISA court, and then within seven days obtains an approval from the FISA court. If they don't get that approval within seven days, uh, then everything is suppressed and there are various other consequences. Um, But there is a mechanism, has been since 1978, although the time limits have been expanded, uh, for that kind of emergency surveillance. And if the surveillance is taking place outside the United States, any ramifications or perimeters put in place under the FISA law? By and large, it's a little bit of an oversimplification, but the more precise answer would take two hours to fully explain. By and large, surveillance that occurs outside the United States um, is not regulated by the 1978 FISA law. There is an executive order and various agency procedures that regulate surveillance abroad, um, at least when it does not involve Americans. Um, And that is Executive Order 12333. That is the 12,333rd executive order issued by President Reagan uh, since the Uh, since they started counting executive orders shortly after the Civil War. Uh, That order has been amended a couple of times, but it's still in place. And then various intelligence community agencies, including, for example, the NSA, have procedures that implement that order and that govern that kind of overseas uh, collection. However, one footnote to that, the FISA Amendments Act of 2008 that I mentioned, which generally made it easier to target non-U.S. persons, foreign persons who are located abroad, increased the standards and the judicial uh, approval process for surveillance of Americans who are abroad. Prior to 2008, surveillance of Americans abroad was done just by the executive branch on its own, pursuant to that executive order. After 2008, it has to be approved by a judge. 
So let's talk about the current headlines and the FISA court, its approval for the surveillance of Carter Page. As you look at the facts, what should have been done differently, if anything? Well, I'm not sure that anything should have been done differently. Um, What I would say is my impression from just reading the Nunes memo and not yet having seen the Democratic response is that somebody is misleading somebody. Um, So the Nunes memo says, as I read it, that the government misled the FISA court about the potential bias of Christopher Steele, the former British secret agent who was a source in uh, who was used in the applications. And we should point out he, he was a source to the FBI even before 2016, correct? That's right. He appears to have been a longtime source of the FBI on various things, according to what I read in the memo. But he was his information was used in some way in the FISA applications that are discussed in the Nunes memo. And the memo complains that the government did not tell the FISA court that Christopher Steele was working for the Clinton campaign or the Democratic National Committee or in some other way for a particular Democratic elements who were opposed to President Trump and his campaign. And that would go to the question of whether Steele had a bias and therefore whether his information ought to be taken at face value or taken with a grain of salt. That's the central complaint as I see it in the Nunes memo. Um, What I suspect will be the case based just on my knowledge of the people who do this and things I've now since then read in the newspapers is that while the government's application may not have mentioned uh, the Clinton campaign uh, by name, uh, and that's traditional not to mention U.S. persons by name, it did probably inform the court that Steele did have a bias, say, because he was working for political opponents of the uh, Trump campaign. And if it did that, which is what I suspect, but we'll see, then it would have been fine as a matter of law. That is a perfectly satisfactory way to advise the court uh, that Christopher Steele's information needs to be taken with an appropriate grain of salt. And it would actually, ironically, then, in my view at least, be the Nunes memo that was attempting to mislead the American people by omission by falsely accusing the government of having misled the FISA court by omission. And is there a process, a checks and balance process, to make sure that the FISA court uh, adheres to the letter of the law, whether it's the the current debate or in general? Well, the judges themselves are, are of course, a significant check and balance on the executive branch's authority. That's what uh, judges do in our country. But they're not the only source of, of check and balance here. The Congressional Intelligence Committee's Um, Chairman Nunes's committee on the House side and uh, the Senate counterpart to that committee uh, since the 1970s have conducted oversight of the executive branch that's um, separate from the judicial oversight. Uh, There's also a lot of internal executive branch oversight from inspectors general and advisory boards and the like. Um, But uh, but Congress has uh, since the mid 70s played a very significant role uh, in overseeing the intelligence process, and there are tremendously significant reporting obligations built into the FISA law and other laws that require the executive branch to keep the intelligence committees fully and currently informed about their use of FISA and other authorities, 
And there is, at least when things are working well, an ongoing dialogue between the committees and the various intelligence community agencies that they oversee. What's so startling about the Nunes memo and the way in which this so-called oversight is going on is that it doesn't appear to be serious about actually engaging with the intelligence community agencies, with the Bureau uh, and perhaps with others. Um, It seems more like it's directly engaged with the American people, which is an unusual way uh, to do oversight. Um, Usually you start with a full engagement with the agencies and then go from there. This seems to have started with um, trying to make something public and only letting the FBI even look at the memo for a brief moment before it became public. Based on your time in the Justice Department, uh, is this typical or atypical to have in the case of Congressman Nunes, his memo, and then Congressman Schiff, uh, the Democratic response? Yeah, this is uh, very atypical. As I said, it's not uh, the way I ever saw oversight being done, nor is it the way I think oversight has been done since the 1970s, based on my study of that. Um, And the release um, through the Nunes memo and perhaps through all or part of the so-called shift memo on the other political side of this, uh, of FISA information, that is information from a FISA application or applications, is extremely unusual, probably unprecedented. Um, it, um, it reflects a, a very, very different uh, state of affairs than we're used to and that we've seen in the last 40 years. Um, And I think it it probably will have some consequences. We just don't quite know yet what those are. Well, let me ask you about that, the consequences, because clearly this has now become a heated political issue. Where does that put the intelligence community, the FISA court, the Justice Department, the FBI, and the CIA? (laughs) It's a tall order to answer that one. I think, um, first of all, uh, it it puts the, the agencies in a tough position. Um, I assume, I believe, that they resist Chairman Nunes's characterizations. They disagree with him. They have something to say in rebuttal. Um, as I said before, if, for example, they did notify the FISA court that Steele was working for political opponents of the president, even if they didn't name them by name, um, that would be a profound rebuttal, which I think would flip the whole thing on its head. And you'd have to ask whether the Nunes memo was itself an effort to deceive, uh, ironically, exactly what it's accusing falsely the FBI of having done. Um, but the problem with that is the more information you provide, the more you risk compromising your intelligence sources and methods and advising your adversary of what's going on. Um, to give you a sort of a fanciful example, just to illustrate the point um, and maybe give people a sense of what this feels like for the government. Assume, and I'm making this up, I want to be clear, (laughs) that the FBI or somebody uh, on the U.S. government side has a hidden microphone inside Vladimir Putin's tea kettle. And this is a tremendously great microphone to have because when you turn it on, you can hear Vladimir Putin saying all kinds of wonderful things that you want to gather for your intelligence purposes. And one of the things, let us say, that they hear him saying is, boy, that Steele dossier is totally accurate and I'm very disturbed and I'm sad that, uh, you know, all this nonsense is going on and I, 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 but I know it's true. Well, that would be relevant information that would bolster Steele's credibility. Again, I'm totally making this up, 
But if you were to disclose that fact publicly in order to defend yourself against the allegations that are being made, well, it's very likely that Vladimir would probably look for the microphone and pull it out of his tea kettle, and then we would have lost that intelligence source and method. Um, that'd be a pretty grievous loss. So it's a totally made-up example, of course, but I think it illustrates the challenge, one of the challenges that the intelligence community faces in trying to rebut publicly uh, allegations that require them to get into classified sources and methods. It's why we generally don't do this sort of thing uh, out in the public, at least not after a very orderly and thoughtful uh, internal discussion that leads to an orderly and thoughtful uh, declassification process. Um, so that's one of the, I think, strains that's going on here. Um, I think more broadly, oversight and transparency between the committees and if the strain ends up uh, being applied to the court, then to the court, um, you know, can create some bad incentives. Um, we want the executive branch to be fully transparent with the Congress and with the court in keeping with the legal standards that apply. And if there isn't confidence that the information will be reasonably protected and that there will be some sense of decency that governs the process, those incentives may be reduced. And I am, that's, that's another area of strain that I worry about for the long run. David Chris, joining us from Washington State. Thank you very much for your time and your expertise. My pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to C-SPAN's The Weekly. Be sure to follow C-SPAN Radio on Twitter to learn about upcoming episodes. And by the way, every C-SPAN podcast is available on the free C-SPAN Radio app, as well as Google Play Music, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts. If you like the program, please rate and review us wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thank you for listening.